can have a seat. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, really, really glad you're here. Um, and I also want to uh, say thank you to Rex Barrett for being here. Uh, for those of you that are new to the church, we're a we're one church with five congregations scattered across the metro. Uh, and so there's uh, a lot of ways in which what happens here uh, at, in Frontline Yukon actually is an extension of things that happen in other places uh, connected to this church. And Rex Barrett is our executive pastor for our church, serves on the ground in our Edmond congregation, but serves uh, all of our church in ways that many of you are not aware. And so I'm just really, really glad you're here this morning. Um, this morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Forgotten Father. And, uh, and I'm really excited about this over the next four weeks to look into uh, what it means, what we mean as Christians when we talk about God the Father. And so I want to pray for us as we get started. Would you pray for me? Um, and, uh, and I'll pray for you. Father, we want to see you as you are. Just thinking about that song as we sing, that we cast our anxieties on you. We don't carry them our own. Why? Because you're a good father. And so, God, I'm asking, would you be our good father? And would you help us see you as our good father today in ways that maybe we haven't or maybe we've never even understood? Pray that you speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Throughout church history, you, there are um, many times in which we look and we see revivals or renewal movements throughout church history, and almost always these revivals or renewal movements are connected to some kind of recovery. In other words, there's been something lost as the church has been navigating this world. There's been some doctrine loss or there's been some recognition of what that doctrine, how that doctrine speaks to our lives that's been lost, and we see these historically. There, there have been a great number of renewals, uh, renewal movements and revivals connected to a recovery of an understanding of God the Son, Jesus. The, the fancy theological word for this, Christology, that the church recovers not just a right way of seeing God the Son, but also a right way of relating to God the Son. We see this in the Protestant Reformation, was a way in which the, the gospel, uh, with this aspect of the gospel of Christ's work in the gospel is recovered. The Great Awakening pointed our, our, our eyes to who Jesus is and what he's done. In the last 50 years, we've seen this in the Jesus movement of the 70s, and also in the last couple of decades, in, the, in a resurgence of gospel centrality among the church. This is a beautiful, beautiful and necessary recovery for the church to see who Jesus is. There's also been movements throughout church history of recovery of an understanding of God the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. The fancy theological term there, pneumatology, that, that this doctrine is recovered and also stepped into, that we, we learn more about who God the Spirit is and also how to relate to God the Spirit. We saw this in Azusa Street, a beautiful recovery. We've seen this in the charismatic renewal over the last couple of decades, and while at times those things can go off rails and can go into areas that aren't helpful, this, this movement, this recovery of this understanding of the Holy Spirit actually pervaded the Catholic Church, Lutheran churches, Methodist churches, even Baptist churches, believe it or not. That there's actually this beautiful recovery of an understanding of God the Spirit. But if we are to be Christian, we are to be Trinitarian, right? Which means we need not only a right view of the Son and also a right view of the Spirit, but we also need a right view of God the Father. 
If we are to be Christian, robustly Trinitarian Christians, we need a clear vision of God the Father. But there's a lot of signs that in many ways we've lost. We've lost a proper view of God the Father. Ask an average Christian what, what they need from their Heavenly Father, and you're likely to get an answer that actually is connected more to the work of Jesus or to connected to the work of the Spirit. Now, God is one, and everything that God does is united in that, and yet there's this abstraction away or this separation away from actually what it means to, that I need something from my Father. There are uh, ways in which if, if we are having a, a time gathering for prayer, often we're praying to Jesus, which is a good and right thing, but sometimes it stops there. We're asking Jesus for things. We're asking the Spirit for things, but we're not actually asking the Father to be Father to us. Culturally, and in the church, we've lost this concept of fathering. A, a good friend of mine, Doug Logan, what I love about it is he's, he's been discipling leaders for years and for decades, and when they come up to him, they go, hey, pops, I love it. I think we should, I think we should get that back. That there's something beautiful when we connect the idea of fatherhood with discipleship. But we've lost that. We've lost this connection to fathering and discipleship. Our culture has lost it. If you look at statistics of fatherlessness, or if you just watch the way that pop culture mocks fathers repeatedly, we've lost something. And before we say, yeah, out there, they've forgotten this. We need to stop and recognize Frontline Church. The reason we as elders wanted to step into this preaching series, this sermon series, is because we feel that we have lost something that we need to recover. Frontline, we need to recover this. So if we're going to move towards this recovery, we need to talk about what are the implications of God as Father that we need to step into. If I look throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, you see this unveiling of the fatherhood of God. It happens all over. It happens all over. I especially loved it as I was preparing for this, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of Jesus preaching and teaching the way of Jesus, the way of the Christian walk. What does it mean to be faithful to God in our time? And 17 times, he turns our attention to God the Father. There is a connection, a very strong connection in, in, in Jesus' teaching between discipleship or between what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and the fatherhood of God. If we look through all these scriptures, there are at least four things that I think we'll see that are just implied by the fatherhood of God. The first is a question of identity. A question of identity. I am many things, but one thing I am is the son of David Knight. In other words, the fact that David is my dad actually affects my identity. My, my kids may not want to admit it, but they're my children, and that's their identity to one degree or another. It's not all of their identity, but it is a portion of it. You see, when we talk about fatherhood, we're actually talking about a relational, a relationality that brings with it a sense of identity. Paul says this in Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, do you see what happens there? What he says is when we're connected through Jesus by the Spirit to this Father, 
our identity changes. We're no longer just created beings. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now children of God, heirs of God. Another implication of the fatherhood of God is provision. Provision. That the father has a providential care for his children that's regularly promised throughout Scripture. See this in Matthew 6. Jesus says this about uh, says this to his disciples. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in a barn, and yet, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You see, God never promises riches and luxury, but he does promise provision for our needs. And another aspect of provision is actually this idea of protection or safety that God comes along to with us in the midst of suffering. Now, you don't have to read much of the Bible to realize that God never says and promises that suffering won't be there. But he also promises never to abandon us to the suffering. He never leaves us there. He always provides in the midst. A third implication is that of authority. That God is our father means he has authority. He gets to call balls and strikes. He tells us the way it is for our good. He's a good sovereign. John 12, Jesus again says this, for I have not spoken on my own authority. This is fascinating, right? Jesus is king. Jesus is king over creation. It is through it is, it is through Jesus that all of creation came to be. And yet he says this, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me this commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. If God is Father, he has authority. And that authority, he directs us. He leads us, he disciples us, and he matures us. Fourth implication, the last one I want to turn our attention to here is love. This is central to the being of God himself, but it's also particular in the way that Father loves his children. John 14, Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now listen to this. Look look at the connection. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Reading throughout the scripture, you just see God's love for his children is limitless. And eternal. We lose sight of this. All those things are good things. All those things are things that we need to recover. All of those things are that, that I'm asking you, frontline church, as we step into these next couple of weeks, would we ask the question of how God, uh, as Father, can help us see those things more clearly? But when we have deformed views of God the Father, we have to go to other places to find these four things fulfilled. If God is not, if we do not relate to God as Father, we're not going to find in Him our identity, 
in him our provision, in him our authority, and in him our love, we're going to have to go elsewhere for that. One of the things that's been um, just heart-wrenching to watch has been the rise of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is an attempt to gain an identity because I'm not connected. Now, my identity is not from my father, so I have to go elsewhere to get it. So I now identify myself with particular movements, a particular nation state. Now, I'm all for being a patriot. I love my country. But my allegiance to, to Jesus, and that is not allegiance that is shared or mingled or mashed together. Partisan identity politics tends to identify the church, am I right? That, that we identify more often with partisan identity politics than we actually do with the fact that we are sons and daughters of our father. We war inside the church because our identity is not connected to that which unifies. Our identities are connected outside. And if we're not looking outside for our self-identity, we'll just create it ourselves. I'll identify myself however I want, and I will, I will mangle the ideas of gender and sexuality to just do whatever I want. I get to define that. Or what I'm going to do is I'm going to build my identity through my vocation. I'm going to prove myself successful. I'm, a, I'm going to do these things to be known as this kind of a person. You see what I'm saying? That if our identity is not found in Father, our relationship to Father God, we're going to find it somewhere. Provision. If God is Father, is not our provider, we're going to go to other means. This gets really squirrely in the prosperity gospel. See, in the prosperity gospel, it talks about God is giving us these things, but actually what it does is it turns the idea of God as a Father into God as a genie or a vending machine. He's not someone who cares for me. He's someone that gives me trinkets when I put the right coin in the right slot and hit the right button. It's horrendous. It mangles our view of God the Father. Now, I believe that the Christian gospel speaks societally. I believe that the gospel speaks to systemic injustices. I believe that God calls us to be a people of mercy and to seek justice and to walk humbly before our God, and that affects socially. But there's a particular version of social, of, of social um, justice that has been simply reduced down to power dynamics. I, don't, I no longer look to God to provide what I need. We're going to grasp it. We're going to make it happen. We're not here to receive a gift from our Father. We're here to build and to grasp at power. And another is consumerism and materialism. Can I get a welcome to the burbs? Right? I don't need God to provide because I got a credit card. And I may need a little help with my mortgage every once in a while. But I feel pretty good as long as my bank account's full. And we find ourselves relying on our ability to consume and our ability to, to build material wealth that actually takes us away from recognizing that God is our provider. If God's not our authority, we're going to run to philosophers, ideologies, or we're just going to become boss ourselves. I'm the autonomous self. Which eventually just reduces down into nihilism. Nobody's in charge, and it goes really bad for everybody. And lastly, love. 
If I do not receive love from the Father, I'm going to go try to seek it elsewhere. And so often this becomes nothing more than self-love in a pursuit of pleasure. Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World captures this in ways that, that, that unlike any other book I've seen. Where an entire demographic of people, an entire uh, uh, grouping of people are simply chasing after pleasure and sexual uh, fulfillment in ways. And they just find themselves hungry, hungry, hungry on this hamster wheel. Never actually finding satisfaction and love, but constantly grasping it. That if we don't receive love from our father, we're going to go seek it somewhere else. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. What, what, has led, what has led to these distortions? In other words, where if we've got a distorted view of God as Father, where's that coming from? It's a really, really important question for us to ask. And I want to point to at least three things. One tragic mistake that we make that clouds our vision of who God the Father is is that we have a tendency to project the image of our fathers back on to God the Father. In other words, if our Father was disconnected, distracted, and withdrawn, we have a tendency to relate to God as if he's nothing more than the same. That too often, some of us had fathers who were harsh and abusive, and so we see God the Father, and we just assume that's, the, that's what it looks like. If God's Father, that's not actually something I want. Maybe your father was absentee, and so you just think, God's, God's gone off on some vacation and left you behind. For some of you, you had, a, you had a nice father. He was nice and kind, but he was, he was really weak and had no, had, had, had no authority or strength in him. He just kind of let you do whatever. He was kind, but he was not really helpful. Some of our fathers were indulgent or manipulative. Some were disappointed and judgmental. And so we see God... This way, we look at God the Father, listen to me, and sometimes all we see is the reflection of our own fathers back at us. And there has never been a father that could actually give us a right view of God the Father. We as fathers, I as a father, want to grow to be more like my heavenly father, but I hope my girls never confuse the fatherhood of God with how, how I am. I've told them repeatedly since they were little, I want to be a good dad to you, but I'm going to let you down. I'm going to fail you. But God the Father will never fail you. It's interesting to know that God was Father to Jesus from eternity. If we want to know what does fatherhood like, we don't look at other people and then just try to imagine a better one. Brooks is a great dad. But I'm not going to get to God by just trying to imagine Brooks by a little bit better. I, I, I need something profoundly better. I need something radically different. I need to see God as Father from eternity. He was Father before there were ever fathers on this earth. So he gets to define what that means. We got to be careful about this tragic mistake of projecting the image of our fathers back on to God the Father. Second tragic mistake we made, we can make, is that we can pit an angry and uh, the, uh, the image of an angry and agitated father against a mellow, chill, merciful Jesus. You hear this all the time, right? The God of the Old Testament, man, kid needed a vacation, 
good counselor, some good meds. He just needed to chill. And then Jesus showed up. He was really, he's really kind. He's cuddly. I like him better. And this idea actually, as grotesque as it is, has really, really subtle ways of sneaking into all of us. Now, we actually see, think that in some ways, God in heaven is really, really upset. And Jesus came down to work it out and just said, hey, hey, Father, why don't you go back in the back room, put the game on, kick your legs up, just chill for a little bit, I'll go take care of this. That's not remotely what happens in the gospel. It's not remotely what happens in the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus mellowing out and trying to appease an angry, agitated father. It's actually the father who sends the son. And while the, father, while the son is suffering on a cross, the father is suffering watching the sacrifice of his son. That is love and mercy and grace that none of us can wrap, wrap our heads around. Let me be so clear as to say this. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus would not have happened apart from the grace, the love, and the will of God the Father. The plan of redemption comes out of the heart of God the Father. Third tragic mistake we make is that we either affirm with our lips or we just begin to believe in the universal fatherhood of God. This is a really important one to keep in mind. This idea is rooted more in Greek and Enlightenment thought than anything. It conflates the idea that God is a good and beneficent creator with the idea that he is father. Is he good, beneficent, and the creator of all humans? Yeah, there we go. There we go. Right answer, yes. Is he father of all? No. If we had time, we'd go to John 8. In John 8, Jesus has this inter interesting encounter with some of the Jewish religious leaders of his day. They're, they're getting in, into it over all kinds of things. And at one point, uh, they, they, this idea of who their father is comes up, and they're like, our father's God. And Jesus is like, no, he's not. If God was your father, you would love me. You would follow me. You would believe me, but you don't. You know who your father is? The devil. I didn't go over very well. It wasn't very much longer than they tried to kill him. Yeah, they did kill him. He's saying, just because you're religious, just because you have a, a Christian bumper sticker on your car, doesn't mean God is your father. These religious leaders were claiming love of God the Father. But their father was actually the devil. Sobering and concerning. In his brilliant book, The Forgotten Father, Tom, Thomas Smale says it this way. Jesus does not teach us the general truth that God has always been the father of everybody. He delivers the good news that God is his father and wills to be ours also as we are drawn into the very same relationship of obedience and trust that Jesus showed at Gethsemane. The fatherhood of God is not the banal and ultimately boring generality defined by philosophy. It is that which is defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus and revealed by the operation of the Holy Spirit. The Our Father that, that, John, that Jesus alludes to in the, the, uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. 
is not the prayer of all men, listen to this, but the prayer of disciples who are following him and who said, Abba, in the garden and on the cross, God's fatherhood is Christologically defined and charismatically revealed. In other words, the fatherhood of God is seen in the Son by the Spirit. But it is not universal. It is specific. Now we're going to be stepping in to these things a little bit more over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be stepping a little bit more into what does it mean that God is Father? How do we relate to him as Father? These are really important questions that we need to step into that we're going to. But I want, I want us to stop for just a moment and realize that what we're dealing with here is not a, merely an academic or theological question. It's an existential one. It's an experiential one. That these are not just things that we need to know. These are things that we need to feel, experience. Because they are things that we feel and experience. So where I want us to go is I want us to turn to the passage in John 20 that Carol read for us before we get started. So pull out your Bibles, turn to John 20, verse 11. Let's look at this again. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, women, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I want you to stop for just a second and feel, as best we can, feel what Mary is feeling. The agony in her soul the weeping, the grief, the pain, the fear. Having said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which mean, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized his voice immediately. Now what happens to her heart? At one moment, her, her hopes were dead and rotting, and now here he is. But then listen to this. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to your to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This encounter between Mary Magdalene and Jesus gives us a window into the questions that we need to be asking as we move through this series. It gives us a window into the questions that we need to be asking. And let's start by going, why was Mary there? Why was Mary there? Jesus says, crucified on Friday, put in a tomb. She shows up on Sunday, roll, the, the stones rolled back. There's no body there. What happened? Throughout the weekend of the feeling of remorse, the one who was supposed to come and save Israel is dead and dying and is a corpse. All of Mary's hopes, all of her anticipations, all of the things that she longed for has now been crushed. And she finds herself Grieving, devastated, in shock. This text doesn't tell us everything that's going through her mind, but I think we can imagine at least some of the things. What is she thinking? 
At least some of the questions that have to be rolling around in our mind at some level. How could this have happened? Is death, destruction, sin, and darkness going to win? Because it sure looks like it at this point. All the hopes that she had are now crushed. Mary wasn't just facing questions about the claims of Jesus at this point, though. See, Mary had been walking as a disciple with, of, with Jesus for who knows how long, but, but a while at least. She'd heard the claims of who Jesus was. She had heard him talk also of the Heavenly Father. So while she's asking questions about maybe I missed it, maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah, she also must be at some level asking these questions. What does that say about the fatherhood of God? If Jesus is the father's son and he let this happen to Jesus, what's going to happen to me? If God the father can't provide a way of escape for his own son, how is he going to provide for me? If the father has so little authority as to get beat back by Jewish leaders conniving with Roman imperial, where's the hope for his authority over my life? And then the question of love. If God truly loved his son, then surely he wouldn't have let him die. So maybe he doesn't love the son. Maybe he doesn't love me. You see, the questions that are rolling through her head are implications of the questioning of who the son is. But she's also fundamentally, whether she recognizes as this or not, is asking questions of the fatherhood of God. Sounds a lot like our aches, our pains, our questions, doesn't it? We walk through life wondering, how could God allow my family member to get sick like that? We, we walk through life wondering, why am I constantly feel alone and abandoned? The, the, the internal angst that many of us carry around. It feels like sin and darkness is winning when I look out at the world, doesn't it? This question of, is God really in control or not, doesn't look like it. Jesus supposedly defeated death, and yet COVID has ripped the, ripped the life from 400,000 Americans, 2 million globally, and we're not done yet. We feel these things, don't we? And if we're not careful, we allow these things to begin to shape what we think God may or may not be. It actually affects the way we see him as father. But it's fascinating here when Jesus see, or when Mary sees Jesus Raised. Let's go back to verse 13. They said to him, woman, why are you weeping? <clears throat> and she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now imagine this. Those questions she had been asking all weekend, those pains she had been feeling all weekend, now evaporate when she sees Jesus. Right? Beautiful picture. And it's right to see Jesus in this way, to see him as the risen Lord. But at this point, Mary thinks the work's over. She thinks the work's over. 
But then we hear these words in John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see, it's really important to recognize that Jesus' work, his death, burial, and resurrection, his work of redemption here, it does not terminate at an empty tomb. It leads to reunification with the Father. That the work of what Jesus did was to reconcile us to God the Father. That we might see the Father clearly. That we might relate to him rightly. Do not cling to me, he says. There's this implicit, go- there's kind of this way of going, this is it's not done yet. I'm ascending to my Father so that you can be adopted. And then he says these words to tell her, to tell the disciples. I am going to to my father and your father, to my God and your God. When you look at the Gospel of John, he never uses pronouns like this about their relationship with the father until right at this moment. Because something profound changed. That is no longer, when we talk about God the father, just the father. And it is no longer Christ's father, Jesus' father. He's our father. He's our father. Jesus says that he is the way to the father, which points us to recognize that the cross and the resurrection are good news because it enables us to be adopted so that God is our father. And when he's our father, we regain a sense of our identity, a sense of provision, an understanding of authority, and we finally gain love. And we're going to be stepping more into this over the coming weeks, and I hope you'll continue to really press in. But here's the question I want to ask you today. Is God the Father your Father? There are lots of questions of what does it mean that He is Father, but this is first and foremost the question we have to ask. Is God your Father? If you're a Christian in the room, if you'd say, my allegiance is to Jesus, I trust him, then you've been adopted by your father. You've been uh, adopted. My, what I want to ask you to do is to, to spend some time asking the father to help you see him rightly and see him more clearly. But if in this room you'd say, I, I'm not a Christian, then I just want to say very, very clearly, God is not right now your father but he can be, and he wants to be. The way of Jesus is the way to the Father, to be adopted by the Father, so that we can be sons and daughters of God that say, behold our Father.